Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence and Mike Nicoletti. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. On oil, gas, and and, uh, capital markets, which I guess is my responsibility, although we're going to encourage Mike to cut in if he thinks I'm being too loquacious or some point needs to be clarified, and then I'll do the same when we get into the into the tech stuff with Mike. But on oil, I have no idea what to think. I mean, there is huge problems in trying to maintain export to Russia in an average day between products and crude they produce about 10 million barrels a day and they'd export about 7 million barrels a day and <clears throat> a fair amount of the 7 million is products especially based on stuff I've been reading in Platts vacuum gas oil which is kind of a precursor to diesel so diesel has gotten really short all of I mean it was really short all over the world uh, as COVID, you know, as, as we recovered from COVID, now it's really short. So how the oil industry or the general economy copes with losing a pretty big chunk of that 7 million barrels a day is happening in front of our eyes. And so counting on oil staying at 109 is, you know, is probably not a prudent thing to do. Counting on it uh, staying at 109 and not going higher is probably not a prudent thing to do. So in terms of what you own or what you think about buying, you really have to focus on things that do poorly when oil prices are high, like airlines, railroads, you know, not the greatest thing for Star Group, which I own a lot of other people on the phone own. I mean, we'll come through it all right, but generally lower oil prices are better than higher oil prices. So how do you how do you invest? How do you how do you think through what you want to hold, what you want to own? Think what you have to do if you're an oil producer and get or a gas producer, and we'll get to gas production in a second. I think you have to have relatively no debt. So relatively no debt means your debt is less than what you could pay off with one year of cash flow. And even no debt is probably better. What that enables you to do is you don't hedge. The problem with hedging is that at 109, which is you know reasonable expectation of what you're going to receive for your March oil. If you sell forward, you're going to be accepting prices much lower. I mean, when you get out a couple of years, it's back to 65 or 70. So a normal backward-aided market, maybe the near the, the 22 would be $10 higher than 23. That'd be pretty big backwardation. Now that number is like $20. So how can you possibly sell forward? What typically happens, what 
not typically. What often happens in markets like this is the backwardation just marches forward. So by the time you get to selling your oil in 23, you may realize $100 for it, even though if you sold it forward, you got only like $85 for it. So better to stay on hedge, better not to be levered. How do you cope with that if you're an operating oil company? Well, almost all companies, from large ones to not so large ones, are setting up to spend not more than two-thirds of the cash flow in CapEx. So I guess what you do is if you, you know, you're, you're probably most of these companies, EOG, Pioneer, Diamondbacks, smaller companies like Magnolia, are set up for $65 oil. I mean, when they put their plans together or when they're adjusting their plans, or I promise you, they're not thinking $100, they're thinking $65. The cash flow would be quite a lot higher because they haven't hedged. What they will do is pay out a little larger dividend, a lot of them might put these variable dividends in where they, they will, no matter what happens, we'll distribute half of our cash flow after CapEx or free cash flow. I'm not sure that really helps the stock performance. I think what would be better to do is increase the dividend a little bit every year and do it even when oil prices are lower, just kind of accumulate cash, kind of a, kind of a cushion. <laughs> now, when you look at gas companies, it's not as pronounced. I mean, LNG, nothing is higher than LNG because of, you know, Europeans wanting LNG rather depend on Russian gas. And LNG was already pretty highly priced. So pick your LNG price, $30, $40, whatever you pick. I mean, you'll, you're, you're either there now or you will get there. And that will probably persist. Normally, it's seasonal. So a lot of LNGs burned in the northern hemisphere, you know, Europe and Japan, Korea, China, but there will not be any respite, I don't think, to lower oil prices in the summer because the Europeans will be buying LNG, regasifying it, putting it in their pipeline grid and putting it in storage so that they go into next winter, their storage absolutely full. So they're not, not you know, try to reduce their dependence on Russian gas as much as they can. So now LNG in Europe's $30, let's say, Fifty dollars, that's like twenty nine in Texas. You still only get about in current current pricing about you know just under five dollars for gas. So good question is what what happens to the difference between five and twenty nine? It doesn't necessarily go to the chenneers who who own the LNG capacity. It goes to the people who contract it for LNG. Utilities majors like Total and Shell are very active doing so. They're making a lot of money now. And now they, there were times when they had those contracts that they had to live by and they were losing money. So, but they're definitely making a lot of money now. Still, $5, you know, gas price in 2020 with COVID and whatnot got, you know, probably averaged, I don't know, 230, 240 of the view that you could be confident for the next five years having gas average at least 350. That's improvement over the last five years. Could be higher than 350, could be 375, 380, could be $4. I mean, possible. But our ability to bring new LNG on is, you know, these LNG plants are expensive and they take a long time to build. So 
there's about 13 bees of capacity. There's about five or six bees of uh, a day under construction, and that, that construction will be completed in the next three years. It'll come on about a bee a day, bee and a half a day a year. So that's good, but in terms of supply, Marcellus and the Utica are flat, you know, at around 35. Haynesville has come up from nine or 10 up to 14. The problem for not having oversupply of matched gas is associated gas from the Permian, which is around 20. And given these oil prices and increased drilling in, in the Permian basins in the middle of the Delaware, we're liable to have that 20 go up. Uh, thing I'm worried about is if we think LNG can go up like five bees a day, you know, 13 to 18 over the next three or four years, could Permian gas go from 20 to 25? Yes, yes, that could happen. If high oil prices persist, it may go from could happen to being, you know, at least a 50% probability. The other categories of gas demand, industrial, residential, commercial for heating homes and whatnot are all kind of flat. If you look back five years and the current year, they're all kind of flat. Power demand is flat and maybe inclines a little bit. The weak or the thing to worry about in natural gas demand is, is power because as we bring on more wind and more solar, those, those are going to run every day and because of very little variable cost. So, you know, gas, baseload gas, baseload gas will all be there for peaking. But if you start to lose baseload share of market, you know, will will gas demand at least stay flat so that the increased Permian production will be offset by increased LNG and we'll have kind of a stable situation. If all of a sudden gas for power demand were going down a, a B a day or something like that a year, that, that would be a little worrisome. So I think gas is fine. The gas companies, the very good ones, are paying down their debt, starting dividends or stock by swearing off, hedging, all that is good. And if, if you take a very good oil company, Pioneer, EOG, Diamondback, and they're trading at about 10 times free cash flow. In other words, if you take their debt plus equity, plus any cash they have on the balance sheet, so it's net debt, and you relate that to their cash flow after CapEx, you're only trading about 10 times, or 10% free cash yield. When you do that same calculation for gas companies, where you assume that the future price is at least 350 and you do a little better next year and they don't hedge and whatnot, you come to around six or seven times free cash flow, which is around a 15% free cash yield for 22 forecast cash flow. It's not clear to me that a Permian oil producer should be trading at 10 times free cash flow and a Marcellus gas producer, because that's where Marcellus and Hainsville, that's where the public equities are, should be trading at 15, 16% free cash flow. So uh, the answer is, which do you prefer? I mean, if you're going to own 10 or 12 stocks, you want two energy stocks. I mean, this is a ridiculous way, you know, simplified way of looking at it. I probably have one oily name from the Permian and one gas name from the Marcellus. And that way, you're split 
my favorite expressions is that then you can only be half wrong. And now, are these good investments? You know, 10% free cash flow, maybe half the cash flow gets distributed. Not bad. Is it good to hedge against geopolitical situation like what's going on with Russia and Ukraine? It, it, it looks pretty good. Now, could it go back into a cycle where, you know, the thing goes down by half? You know, maybe, but I think there's a lot of discipline in these companies and there's a lot of technological capability they have to to continue to be able to hold their production flat or increase spending only two thirds their cash flow. I mean, that's not easy to do. That's a real achievement. So, you know, these names, you know, they're, they're, they're actually doing pretty darn well. In terms of interest, as you all know, who listen every Wednesday, I don't understand, and I think Mike joins me, why the future 10-year price of, of money, the 10-year bond, the U.S. Treasury, shouldn't be the inflation rate plus one or one and a half points. So you get one or one and a half points of real return after inflation. All the economists who follow this say, no, it's not the way it works. They say the two-year bond will be what people think the Fed funds rate is going to be. So when they start talking about seven increases or eight increases, eight increases times 25 basis points is two points. Voila, the 10-year bond is around 200 basis points or two percentage points. And the curve is kind of almost getting inverted. Now, all the experts say you're okay in a long bond because it, it, it will continue to, it may even trade below the two-year bond because that's what happens when the Fed tightens. I am a skeptic. I believe that when you when you took the Fed balance sheet from four billion under four uh, four trillion up to nine, and when the Fed, because they're worried about inflation, as they should be, they're at least six or nine months behind coping with it. If they just put it in runoff, in other words, they don't reinvest the interest in principal payments. I think something will change. The economists don't, uh, frankly, from a point of view of having you know being. 85% invested, maybe 15% cash in equity, especially non-energy. I hope that the economists are right, but I, I am a skeptic. And with that, I quoted Mike disagreeing with me, but over to you, Mike, on interest rates. Yeah, the only thing I would add is that what the yield curve implies at this point, assuming we maintain some level of inflation in the next couple of years, which seems like at least the next year we're going to, I just don't see how you could have a picture where we don't have uh, a much higher than 2% inflation on average over that period. So what the curve implies today is that we're going to have some sort of negative inflation at some point. But then the, the other thing that I guess I should add is also that there's a lot of incentive structurally within the system to keep rates low. And that, I don't know how that necessarily plays out. It's certainly not the typical mechanism by which the Fed is supposed to manage the money supply. So I guess we'll find out. Yeah, we'll comment on that every Wednesday and you know, and try not to take a position either way so that we're less likely to feel foolish with the benefit of hindsight. One of the companies that uh, we discussed uh, when we discussed chips, obviously uh, called Taiwan Semiconductor, and of course, with the invasion of Ukraine, a, a fair question is, well, China be emboldened to do something from a military point of view to try to add Taiwan as you know part of mainland China. If they did, what would the U.S. do? You know, we say we 
don't want to do a no-fly zone in Ukraine. We don't even want to deliver them extra makes from Poland because, as President Biden says, we don't want to we don't want to have U.S. and Russians shooting at each other. That that's called third world war. If you apply that logic to China and Taiwan, you know, if if China tried to kind of annex Taiwan using military force, what would the U.S. position be? It seems to me that, you know, U.S. China China's a nuclear power, U.S. pilots or, or U.S. ships firing at Chinese ships, you know, we would we would sanction China like we have sanctioned Russia now, you know, sanctions, uh, I think if exceeded even the expectations of the people who imposed them, especially freezing the central bank assets outside of Russia, would, our, would, would, would we do that to China? Maybe. I had a friend of mine say, well, we couldn't afford to do that to China. We're too dependent on China. I'm not sure I agree with that. You know, the, the average item that, you know, clothing or, or electronics or whatnot, the price may go off. But I, you know, I don't, I don't think the U.S. or Europe or Japan or Korea that dependent on China. And I think we could effectively wreck the Chinese economy. I think China's much more outward looking. Well, not more. They're much more dependent on having, you know, a strong export. Remember, the Russian population is quite, quite small, 150 million people or something. China has to feed and, and have workers and whatnot, you know, a billion, 200 million people. So, you know, would China do it? I don't know. Would the U.S. impose the same severity of sanctions if they tried to, you know, annex to Taiwan? I, I mean, I guess so. So one of the, so when thinking about that, I thought, well, Taiwan Semiconductor is fine, but suppose in effect it's controlled by China. Isn't that an argument for Intel? So got a Intel 10K earlier this week. They, uh, Vivian printed out for me, says this is, what, yeah, and it is much better organized than any other 10K I've seen. It, it, it's, it's much, much better read than most 10Ks. I encourage everyone to read it. It has a lot of interesting information. What I come away from and discuss this with Mike in prior Wednesday calls and earlier today, it just has that look of IBM of being behind. Now, if Taiwan Semiconductor were not available so that when ADM, AMD or Video or Qualcomm or whatnot had, or Apple or Amazon, if they, you know, then maybe, you know, it's a $50 stock there, 4 billion shares outstanding, 200 million market cap, maybe all of a sudden it's worth 800 billion. I mean, maybe there's that kind of upside if that started to happen. But short of that, it just kind of looks to me like, like IBM. You know, it's just, you know, it, 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 it hasn't performed. It, it, it may perform in the future. And Pat Gelsinger certainly makes a good case, the new CEO, but it hasn't performed. And with that, we've got about six or seven minutes left. Just want to get Mike's commentary on that. And then when Mike and I were early, I got interrupted. NVIDIA had an investor day. And so Michael takes half of the remaining, after we, after we get through commenting on Intel, we'll take half the remaining time and comment on the NVIDIA uh, investor day, and, and I'll be hearing it for the first time. So over to Mike to close out our 30 minutes. Great. Okay. On the semiconductor front, um, 
the the theme kind of running behind why Intel is getting so much hype at the moment is this concept of decoupling. So uh, we've got a lot of our semiconductor production capacity, all different stages from the fab to packaging and every part in between resides in Asia. The vast majority of it in Taiwan. It's a contested place. It's a, it would be a scary scenario where, where China could, would come in to, to take it. I think there's a lot of reasons to argue that it would not be a by force type of invasion should it happen. And the main reason behind that is that without the people to run these fabs, there's, they're not going to be productive or useful to China. So it would be very easy for Taiwan Semiconductor or Taiwan themselves to essentially sabotage the purpose of any invasion there by destroying those fabs. And the talent that runs them would likely very um, quickly want to come to the U.S. or somewhere else that's more accommodating for for the future of that industry. So I, I think in general, it would be a different sort of situation if we're going to hypothesize what could happen between China and Taiwan. So that all points back to Intel is like, well, they're the biggest that's left in the U.S. that still actually makes stuff. And should point out that they actually still do quite a bit of work in, in Southeast Asia. The concept here is Pat Gelsinger is taking over and he's going to steer Intel back into the future and they're going to leapfrog the technology that it currently exists and start churning out the best of the best leading edge chips in a few years here. I, I think there's a lot of execution risk with that strategy. The main reason that this production doesn't happen in the U.S. today is that we're not a competitive place to do this. It, it costs at least four times the amount of money to build a fab in the U.S. as it does in Taiwan. And that's just building the fab, not operating it. Um, the, the, the next piece of it is execution risk. Taiwan Semiconductor has got decades worth of experience in building, scaling, and running fabs. Um, you see that Samsung's actually struggling today with scaling their five nanometer and their four nanometer process. So I, I think there's execution risk there. I think there's um, cost risk, but it's a it's a great story, and we all I, I guess hope that it works out well. So the, the one thing I'll mention quickly is that there is this decoupling thing going on. There's other companies doing um, expansions in the U.S. and Europe as well. The catalyst there is probably, at least domestically, is the CHIPS Act. There's a similar act going through Europe right now and different incentives in specific European countries. That will be a catalyst for a lot of semiconductor capital equipment. Ultimately, it may end up in a global oversupply of capacity, but we'll, we won't know for a few few years. And I think I'll, I'll pause there, Hunt, if you have anything else you want to cover on. No, no. I, no, I think that's good. And we'll continue next week. And and but. Since I one day I got jam, wasn't able to get back to you. Love love to hear your yeah your couple of three four minute comment on the Nvidia Investor Day. So Nvidia is has a annual event called GTC, and they had the keynote presentation for GTC this year was over an hour long. I'm going to provide the link to that keynote in our email this week. But what I really liked about it is the the part of NVIDIA that's been most interesting to me since the very beginning is the possibilities for enterprise applications. 
And if you look at GTC over the years, it's become less and less focused on gaming and more and more focused on enterprise. And I think I've got a couple of minutes here. So let me just give a high level overview to kind of maybe help you understand NVIDIA's business, because I do think this stuff is very exciting. There's an essential hardware layer, and that's where most of NVIDIA's monetization comes from. These are the supercomputers like DGX and HGX, and there's a bunch of other ones. They're very expensive. An implementation at a company like Facebook is in the tens of millions of dollars and more. There's a software layer, which NVIDIA in general provides for free. And those are the tools that software developers can use in order to build stuff on top of that hardware. That's why they're special, because NVIDIA invests a ton of money in that software layer that makes it absolutely no-brainer obvious what hardware you're going to use, because NVIDIA has already built most of the things that you need in order to build whatever project you're trying to build. So you can utilize essentially these Lego bricks of, of software packages that help you get to your destination faster. As NVIDIA continues to invest in that software layer, their hardware actually becomes more valuable. And then there's a third layer that's relatively new and hasn't been super well monetized yet, but it, it's part of the story. And that is the NVIDIA built, purpose-built software packages. And the, the one they've been talking about for quite a long time now is Drive. This They're forecasted that this year they're going to have their first really meaningful revenue year for uh, for Drive. And it's because they have a lot of customers like Jaguar, Mercedes, and I think they just signed a deal for BYD. So essentially they can bolt on self-driving to their product offering by adopting the NVIDIA hardware in the car and the NVIDIA pre-built software called Drive to enable the self-driving technology. So that's pretty exciting. Another piece is Omniverse. Again, I'll include the video so that you can check this out for yourself. It kind of shows you the way that uh, Fortune 500 is changing. And actually there was a comment in that, that 40, about 40% 40 of Fortune 100 companies have already adopted some form um, of their enterprise stack. So I think NVIDIA and the enterprise is, is very exciting. I think this GTC was specifically exciting because of the focus on that part of the business. And more next week on NVIDIA and because it's very timely, more next week on geopolitical and impact of sanctions on China if they happen. In the meantime, everyone stay well and we'll be on next Wednesday. Take care. Thank you for joining us this week. Please tune in to us again next week as we'll be back on Wednesday. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you.